So welcome to the Privileged Man podcast. This is your space to explore the less spoken aspects of being a man in today's world. I'm your host, Pete Hunt, inviting you on this journey of discovery and understanding. Today, we welcome Patrick Foster, a former professional cricketer, insurance broker, and independent school teacher. His story, however, is not one of seamless victories. Behind the facade of an idyllic upbringing and early accomplishments, Patrick grappled with a pathological gambling addiction that began during his university days. The challenges he faced in transitioning from the world of sport into the harsh realities of everyday life fueled a dependency that would see him bet an astonishing four million pounds over 12 years. Patrick's addiction monopolized his existence, pushing him to the very edge and bringing him to the precipice of taking his own life in March 2018. This rock bottom moment served as a catalyst for change, triggering a profound awakening within him. Driven by an inner need to turn his hardship into a beacon of hope for others, Patrick has committed himself to share his journey since 2018 with the world. This episode is a narrative of privileged education, happiness, despair, understanding, and eventually recovery to understand what it means to be a truly privileged man. Welcome to another eye-opening episode of the Privileged Man podcast. So Patrick Foster, welcome to the Privileged Man podcast. Thanks for uh, coming on today. No, thanks so much for having me. It's great to chat to you. Absolute pleasure. So can you take us on a little bit of a journey from, say, day zero uh, to your first bet? Yeah, um, you probably wouldn't believe it looking at me, but I was actually born and brought up in Kenya. Um, my parents had been out there for some years. Uh, Dad was the headmaster of a school out there. Um, so I spent the first six years of life over there and it was pretty idyllic, to be honest. Um, it was a, a great upbringing um, with an older sister, younger brother. And then we came back to the UK in 1993 when I was six. Um, moved back primarily for, for dad's job um, and also to a degree our education. Um, and I got thrown into a, a prep school um, where dad was actually headmaster of. So that was sort of a bit different for a lot of people, um, but was great in many ways. It certainly had pros and cons, um, but kind of childhood was great, very happy, supportive family. Um, and yeah, it was, it was good. That was in Derbyshire and that was till I was 13. And then when I was 13, I left there, um, and went to boarding school in Northamptonshire, um, school called Oundle, where, uh, I arrived, um, as a kind of pretty high achieving, very driven, uh, 13 year old. I struggled with boarding initially, I think because I hadn't really been exposed to it previously, although I'd boarded at prep school my mum and dad were there every second of every day really um so I struggled at first but actually once I got over that the next five years I spent at school were amazing um and I think that was pretty much because life was great um I can honestly say I didn't have to deal with too many challenges um didn't have a huge amount of experience of kind of failure because everything went pretty well um, my whole young life, I had one real passion and that was sport. Um, 
And fortunately for me, I was pretty good at it. And that was the thing I was bothered about whilst I worked hard and was reasonably bright, um, did other things. It was, it was all about sport for me. And obviously being at a school like I was, it gave me incredible opportunity. When I was 15, as far as I was concerned at the time, life got even better. Um, when I was offered a place on the Northamptonshire Cricket Academy, I spent my final four years at school combining studies with preparing for a life in professional sport. Um, and at that point in my life, that's all I thought I was going to do and all I wanted to do. Um, and that got even better when I, I left school, I signed a professional contract. I actually left home and moved to Northampton, uh, took a year out after I left school and, and just played cricket full time. And actually things went really well that year, a lot better than I or I think anybody else expected. Um, I performed really well. And I think that added to my belief that that was going to be me. I was sorted. Um, I was going to live my dream um, for the next however many years and lucky me kind of thing. Um, and then at the end of that year, age 19, I had a difficult decision to make because on the back of A-levels, um, UCAS application, all that kind of stuff, I've been offered a place at university. And I always thought I'd want to go to university. I always thought that's what people did um, and I would follow that path. But at the same time, there was part of me that thought, well, actually, hold on a second. I just want to play cricket and I've got an opportunity to do that. But in the back of my mind, and I think a lot of people around me, there was this knowledge that professional sport is so unbelievably cutthroat and competitive there are actually a lot of people in your situation a lot can happen in a short space of time with regards to injuries it's pretty fickle and actually the university i've been offered a place at durham was not only one of the best or most highly regarded universities in the country it also had a center of excellence for cricket so it seemed perfect and yeah, the decision was kind of made to, to go to do an undergraduate degree in combined social sciences, which if I'm brutally honest, I didn't have too much interest in. It was, I was going to play cricket and if I could get a degree alongside it, then brilliant. Um, so I arrived there in October, 2006. I had a year left on a cricket contract and the way the contracts worked, you could sort of go to university for the first two terms, play university cricket, and then as soon as university cricket was done, summer term was over, or if the county needed you, you you're back to Northampton and, and carry on with your contract. So it was great. I was getting paid at the same time, which was different to most students. So as I say, life seemed pretty good. Um, and then when I got to university, um, I made new mates, um, I settled in pretty quickly, um, but two weeks into my time at university, one Saturday morning, a few guys that I'd become mate, matey with pretty quickly, um, they said to me on the back of a big night out, a bit hungover, look, we're going down the bookies as they called it, to put on their weekly football accumulator. I didn't know much about it, to be honest. It wasn't something that had been part of my life. Um, it wasn't something that my friends or family did. My kind of knowledge of gambling was the Grand National once a year where we all sat ceremoniously around the TV, 
dad having put a couple of quid on a horse that we like the name of the color of done a sweepstake and that was gambling as far as i was concerned um but i walked into a coral um in durham and my whole world changed my eyes were open to a world that i'd obviously never seen or been part of um my first bet was on a roulette machine on a fob tea machine um having watched a guy feed 20 pound notes into this machine for about 15 minutes and eventually sort of kick it punch it storm out of the shop i sat down in the bucket chair and being an overconfident arrogant and actually i now understand pretty naive 19 year old boy i put my two quid in the roulette machine there was only one number on there that was different from all the others green zero it was the last number to come up and me being me i thought what the chance of it happening twice in a row um i put two pounds in the machine and 12 seconds later zero came in um two pounds became 72 pounds and as i always say my life changed forever it's an amazing story because actually it's one which is which on the face of it seems quite different to most addicts right i mean at the root of most addiction is pain but it seems to me or it feels to me as though that there isn't a, a vast amount of pain in your childhood that you could actually point to but what i'm hearing is that perhaps that word naivety perhaps everything was just so perfect and privileged in a material sense that it actually didn't prepare you for real life you talk about how difficult uh professional sports and how cutthroat it is um certainly my experience of going to university and, and leaving public school was um very very confronting um i personally don't feel as though i i didn't have the resilience and i had to learn that in a rather in a rather awkward experiential way um would you say that i've i've hit the nail on the head there in terms of the way in which you're childhood played out or is there some pain was there some elements that you've discovered during your recovery um that you didn't actually weren't in, in your conscious brain they're, they're sort of surfacing your subconscious yeah i think it's a it's a really interesting question i think there's two parts to that answer as far as i was concerned i think there was some pain um and some trauma if you like but i think that came a year later um when my cricket career ended um and i think that's what probably was the root cause of a lot of what happened for 12 years after that that said um i can relate to a lot of what you just said in terms of the fact that actually throughout my kind of upbringing and childhood i always thought i was really resilient i realized now i wasn't at all um and yeah i think it it was what came after that i just simply wasn't prepared for um and couldn't deal with it um but i think that kind of year between starting gambling and as I say, my cricket career finishing, that kind of sowed all the seeds for what was about to happen. I've talked about this in a previous podcast, but it's a, it was a, it was on a smaller, much smaller scale, leaving school for me, leaving that team environment, leaving my brothers 
um, in the changing room and then suddenly you're being shot out and being not playing team sport. And I actually went through an an illness post-school, which shot me out of doing team sports as well. Um, That sense of of loneliness um, and not being able to share was my first, I didn't consciously realize it at the time, was my first, uh, as you say, trauma with a small t. Um, because I was learning on the on the job, so to speak, that whilst the the expression of being surrounded by guys in your team, whatever it is, it could be on the bus, it could be in the dressing room. You're talking, you're talking about your life, you're getting it out there, you're sharing what's going on in your lives. Um, and we've got actually we've got an ex professional rugby player and an ex um, Olympic uh, rower in our in our community, and they talk a lot about exactly what you just said and how prevalent and actually under-resourced it is in the professional sporting world and leading into a question of do you find and have you since um since being in your recovery talked to other professional sportsmen who particularly i guess in the cricket world um who have had similar experiences to you yeah absolutely um i think it's certainly not uncommon and i think in my experience age 19 i was a talented um aspiring professional cricketer age 20 i was nothing i'd lost that identity and i found that so difficult to deal with um and it hit me so hard because all I'd ever wanted and actually having had a little taste of almost made it worse and when it was gone I really struggled but going back to what we were just talking about I'd been the person in life that had never struggled with anything um of course like everybody have highs and lows but mine were relatively so small particularly on on the lows and then suddenly this felt like the biggest thing in the world to me and it might not done to a huge amount of other people and it was dealing with that that i found so difficult but i think because i'd been the bloke in life who'd never struggled with anything i really didn't want to admit it and i didn't want to tell people that i was struggling and i wasn't lonely in the sense that I still had loads of mates. I was still playing cricket at Durham. I had teammates. I had an incredible family. But I felt lonely about that particular thing because I felt like I'd let myself down. I felt like I'd let other people down. But I felt like I couldn't really talk about it. Um, and so I was lonely in a in a very different way with that particular kind of thought. And it really hurt. Um, and yeah that's when gambling for me started to play a very different part in my life because not only did it kind of become a way of replicating the feelings that i used to get from playing the rush the buzz the instant response reaction gratification but it also was a form of escapism it was my way of running away from the way I was feeling because when I was doing it I didn't have those feelings 
So it became medicinal, therapeutic, however you want to describe it. Um, but I almost felt like I couldn't talk about it because, well, it's it's not that big. Um, but I think the more I've spoken to other sportsmen and women, it's huge. And that transition out of sport, whether it's like me when you were relatively from a professional point of view unsuccessful, it was quite short-lived. Or whether you've played hundreds of times for your country and you're a superstar, you still have to deal with it. And there's a lot more support now around that and a lot more work around transition. Doesn't get any easier, but people have got that around them. When I got released in 2007, there was nothing. Um, I walked upstairs, I picked up my kit, I moved my stuff out of a shared house. And the following day, that was it. Cricket was done. It's brutal, mate. It's brutal. What was wrong with your technique? A lot. <laughs> um, I think that was only half the problem. Um, Actually, but, interestingly, yeah. was it technique or was it attitude? What, what did they see? It? What was it that they gave you? Did they give you any kind of feedback about why they were letting you go? Yeah, I mean, I think also, I think to be fair to um, the county and the world of professional sport, I always knew in my heart of hearts there may be something that was holding me back and it certainly wasn't desire, attitude, work ethic because that was sort of unrivaled in some ways. It was it was ability um, in the sense that I used to bowl um, and I didn't bowl quick enough. Simple as that. And I was sort of trying to be an all-rounder and I probably wasn't quite a good enough batsman to be a genuine all-rounder. So actually in my heart of hearts, I, I probably knew it was going to be a struggle. Um, and I think that probably made it harder in some ways um, because there wasn't a sense of injustice in terms of, oh, like I shouldn't have been released because I've actually performed brilliantly and look at my stats on paper, I'm this, that and the other. It was, it was hard not to argue with. I think the disappointing thing when I look back is my reaction to that in the sense that like a lot of sportsmen, women, athletes go through setbacks and unless you are super, super talented um, and kind of on that other level that not many people are, at some point you're going to have to deal with that um, and it's how you kind of overcome that and I couldn't. I just gave up. I threw the towel in. That was that. Um, and that's the bit I look back on with regret. Um, it would also be easy for me to blame the demise of my cricket career on gambling. The reason I didn't make it as a professional cricketer was not because I became a gambling addict or was a gambling addict at the time. But that said, it didn't help things. Thanks for that. I, it's really interesting. What comes up for me there is just where is your male mentor? Where was the where was the healthy male in your life who put an arm around you and said, "Look, everything's going to be okay," and um, not necessarily say the words "Don't go off the rails here," 
but be supportive, be there to listen to that, the, the voice that you just talked about uh, a couple of minutes ago that, oh, I, it's not, I'm not worthy of complaining. Everything's been great for me. Who was there or who could have been there <laughs> in that moment to help you process that bit of trauma that ultimately it feels to me as though it led you to go off the rails? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. It's a difficult one to answer in some ways, because obviously the one person that immediately springs to mind is, is my dad, um, who I have always had a very good relationship with, but I think one of the problems there was with dad, I almost felt like I was letting him down. I know now that actually his response probably would have been completely the opposite if he'd known how I was actually feeling, but I wasn't prepared to risk putting that relationship in jeopardy by saying, look, I am really struggling with this because there was part of me that wanted to do it for him. Um, and I think, I mean, there's a lot that you could go into there but I think the fact that he'd always been my kind of fet master was a bit of a figure of authority he had always seen me kind of succeed it was like oh I, I just can't bring myself to tell him and actually now I realize in hindsight I could have um and actually he we've got a different we've got as good a but a different relationship now and i see a very kind of vulnerable emotional side to him that i never really saw um i don't know whether he hid it from me or whether i was kind of naive to it but actually i realize now that he's the person that i should have spoken to but in my mind he was the last person that i wanted to um my younger brother who's kind of my best mate in the world now and obviously played a, a huge part in my story and was ultimately the person that I did reach out to he was a little bit younger at the time he was still at school and rightly or wrongly I probably thought well actually he he's probably not emotionally mature enough to deal with what um I'm going through and yeah, I didn't really have that mate um, or that person. Um, so you were, you weren't again. You weren't alone, but you were lonely within the within the problem, within the within the suffering, and that that shame and guilt and unworthiness to almost uh, from from what I'm hearing to tell your dad. And I think so many men feel like this. And thank you for being so honest about it. It's just like you were you were operating from a place where you wanted to do it for your dad rather than doing it for yourself and it's talked about as being you know daddy issues it's like a, it's like a you know this unspoken universal thing that's going on for men is that if we don't have emotionally open fathers and we and they can actually tell us or you know essentially put an arm around you and go look you go and lead the life that you your actual soul your heart is telling you to do then we always think that you're always making assumptions about what they're actually thinking. And it's great to hear that because ultimately your mistakes, my mistakes as well, um, are 
going to now feed back through podcasts like this and various different ways in which we can get to a younger generation, right? And just say, if I had had that conversation with my father and got through the shame of whatever, whatever it is, in your case, not becoming a professional cricketer, I may actually not have gone on to lay down four million pounds worth of bet. So it's when the when the doors open an inch, you know, it's like, well, that something needs to, you know, we need to go and have a look through that door rather than slamming the the doors open, you know, coming through at a hundred miles an hour, you know, ten years later and going, uh, well, actually this just happened. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think you've hit the nail on the head there in the sense that the irony is there wasn't from my parents there wasn't they weren't high pressured they weren't the ones that were kind of the stereotypical young professional sportsman woman parents who are kind of it's about them as much as it is about their their child they weren't like that at all but i think it was the the bigger picture um i was the one at school who left school signed a professional contract was going to become a professional cricketer to everybody around us that was going to be me and then suddenly it wasn't and i was like well geez how do i how do i basically come to terms with the fact that i've let so many people down and of course i hadn't that was in my mind it's a really wonderful uh, story which metaphorically can spread i mean i'm sure will land with lots of people in different ways in the in their lives right um thank you for being so open about that um patrick you mentioned about the way in which then things spiraled um and university being the university and i had my experiences up at durham as well so i know what it was like <laughs> <laughs> um drinking and drugs like how much of an influence did that then have in this slide into gambling um not hugely at first in the sense that it was very much gambling that i turned to i'd always liked to drink and i'd always been a drink i'd never taken drugs in my life then when i moved into the city that became my relationship with those two things became different because I was gambling so much those things then started to help me deal with the gambling and do you think that's particularly prevalent and I know that you do a lot of work within the independent schools now and I'm, I'm pretty sure things have come on since I was um, at school in the 90s but do you think that culture is particularly prevalent within ex-public school boys yeah i think i think it certainly was um i think it probably still is but i actually think less so now than kind of our generation um and i think in our generation it was it was massive um whereas actually i think now because of the the work that's being done there's greater awareness i think it's definitely decreasing but that doesn't mean it's gone away um so moving into your betting 
years when it got pretty serious when you, you moved to London. Um, and then you moved out from London and you moved into a teaching role. When people look at it, this on the face of it, and it's like four million pounds worth of bets were made over a 12 year period. Where did you get the money from? Yeah, it's, it's hard to believe. Um, I think going back to that transition that you just made, obviously when I left London, I had this kind of belief that if I changed my lifestyle, the environment I was in, the culture I was surrounded by, it would get rid of the problem. I now, of course, understand that I needed to change me. Um, and actually in some ways it, it made it worse. Um, in terms of kind of how I funded the addiction, I went through all the often normal means of doing it initially in terms of I took out pretty comprehensive significant bank loans, um, every credit card you could possibly imagine, payday loans, um, and a huge number of them. And for a while that sustained my gambling because of course the nature of gambling is that you win and you lose. So you need money a lot of the time but you don't need it all the time but that sustained me for a while um and it was then once those ran out that i was like well where where do i go next what do i do next um and it's either crime um or i do something completely kind of left field if you like and what i then started to do is i started to approach the parents of pupils that i taught for money um by telling them all sorts of weird and wonderful lies um i wasn't stupid i recognized that a lot of the people that I knew who were in that environment were incredibly wealthy people. I'd been brought up with it. Um, I knew how much money some of these people had. I knew what jobs they had. I had access to that information. And I thought, well, I've got very good relationships with these people. If I turn around to them and say, look, I'm in some sort of problem, um, obviously not ever citing that it was gambling or addiction but that i needed money these people liked me they respected me they were ultimately worried about me and i knew that they had the money to lend me and and so i started doing that and as soon as it worked once i was like well hold on a second there this open supper exactly um no, just tell me because i'm i'm absolutely fascinated um by this these are smart people clearly either run companies run teams um were entrusted by corporations or funders or whatever to run and make big decisions um, with big money looking at you and you pitching them for money they must have gone through and thought of their sort of like general due diligence and i'm just interested in that specific interaction of how you got them over the line yeah i i don't actually know the answer if i'm if i'm brutally honest i think you 
you mentioned it there i think if you're a compulsive gambler you're a compulsive liar um and i i did lie about everything i was living a lie and you almost have to get to that point in order to kind of as you say believe that it's reality or it's normality which is what's really scary about addiction because your morals your values your principles have gone out the window but i i think i just abused these very like strong relationships that i had um i think also and i'm far from proud of this in fact quite the opposite but i think because i was so highly regarded as an individual and as a teacher by their children that there was this kind of desire to help me out um and yeah i mean i i i would just do it and send an email send a message whatever it might be and that almost became an addiction in itself because that almost gave me a thrill if it was successful or if it wasn't um can you give me an example of just one one of the things that you may have said that you were doing with the money often it was things to do with like tax um it was often medically related um i didn't honestly care what i was lying about as long as it meant that i got some money to gamble with um and it was almost like the bigger the lie the more extreme the reason the less questions were likely to be asked and when i would kind of think up of a new excuse or a new lie or a new reason and kind of test the water sometimes it was met with questions and my response to that would be like okay it's not big or bad enough um and i just shut it out um mm. and tell me about um the way in which all of this came crashing down eventually my biggest fear if you like happened when people did start asking questions um and saying look what's going on and it was more than one or two people i believe i don't know um i started to drop the ball for one of a better term in in lots of different ways as well and it was like a perfect storm um and essentially at that point school that i was working at had no choice but to look into it in more depth um for all the right reasons um and i got found out rightly so and what then happened was the knowledge that I was going to lose my house that came with my job i knew i was going to lose my job my biggest fear was not those two things it was going to prison um and i thought as a result of all the things that i'd done the fact that i'd signed contracts forged signatures stolen money that was supposed to go to charity i mean just horrendous things that make me feel sick thinking about and talking about I thought well there's there's no way i can't like not end up imprisoned um and that was my biggest fear and i tried to gamble my way out of the problem and this is probably the worst thing about a gambling addiction 
that's different to other addictions. I wouldn't wish alcoholism or drug addiction on my worst enemy, but the kind of irony of a gambling addiction is the only thing you think is going to solve it is the thing that's caused it in the first place. Because you honestly think all you need to do is get rid of the financial turmoil. Um, so I tried to win the money back that I knew I owed by gambling. I borrowed money off somebody that I'd already borrowed money off. And during the Cheltenham Festival in 2018, it became a matter of life and death because I'd said to myself, I'm either going to win that money back and pay everybody back. Of course, now I know I would paid everybody back. But at the time, that was my genuine intention. Or if I wasn't successful in doing that, I was going to kill myself because there was no way I could admit or tell people what had been going on for, in all honesty, the last 12 and a half years. Yeah, amazing. Thank you for being so open about it. Um, and within that, you, you talk about life and death. And I think that this is where um, I really resonated with your story was because I'm guessing to the outside world, people looked at you and thought, Pat Foster, great, great um, teacher, lovely man, and everything was pretty ship shape. And it was the same for me um, back in 2012. I was 30. Uh, I was, I was living a dream life in Bali, buying beaches, raising money, um, having a whale of a time. But I found myself in December 20, 2012 on the side of Sands End train station in London with my head going, throw yourself in front of the train with my heart. And thankfully, my heart was happy uh, and loved and I had a loving family um, and a couple of really loving friends. But my head wasn't in absolute turmoil. But what I realized in that moment, just how vulnerable humans are, and particularly men, I had had a privileged background. I had had a loving family. And still at the age of 30, I'd managed to find myself on the edge of a train station with my head in absolute turmoil. These issues don't discriminate, can happen to anybody. But weirdly, when you are the person who has everything, is everything. When you're in that situation, the shame weirdly is even greater because your perception is, well, people are going to think, well, how on earth could you do that when you're so lucky and you've got this? But actually, it doesn't matter. It's how you're feeling regardless of what's going on around you. And I mean, for me, I tried to gamble my way out of the problem. I didn't. Um, I was unsuccessful, unsurprisingly. Um, and then I attempted to do the unthinkable in various different ways, all of which were fortunately unsuccessful. And then I arrived at Slough train station near where I lived. Um, and in my mind, that's what was going to happen. That's what I was going to do. But at that point, weirdly for the first time in, I'd say 12 and a half years, I actually properly thought about other people rather than just myself. Addiction is 
very selfish. It, it does make you very selfish. And I had been for that long. And suicide is a very complex and, and difficult subject. One thing I find really difficult when that term is used is when people say it's a selfish act. I can understand why people say that because it is selfish in what it leaves behind. But actually when you are in that situation, in that moment, you feel like you're being selfless. You feel like the world will be a better place for everybody, including myself, if I am not here. But the difference for me was at that point, I thought, well, what about, what about them? What have they done to deserve to have to deal with what I'm about to do? And the answer was nothing. And that was the big turning point because I thought I've got to tell them. I don't know what their reaction will be, but I've got to tell somebody. But it was because I thought about other people, not just myself. I also realized that what I was about to do was a permanent solution to a potentially temporary problem. And so I reached out to, to my younger brother who had no concept at the time of quite where I was, was, what the gravity of the situation, um, the proximity of it all, because I think he might have reacted in a different way. And thankfully he, he didn't know that. And, and I just said, look, this, this is where I've got to, this is the point I've reached. Um, and his reaction was kind of the turning point because of what he said. It was just so simple. He, he said, look, he said, don't, don't do what you're about to do. He said, talk to me. He said, just please be honest. Um, and he said, look, we'll support you. I'll support you and we'll support you. Um, and that's what I needed to hear. Um, didn't do what I was about to do. And as they say, the rest is history. It didn't mean that a magic wand had been waved and the problem had disappeared and I wasn't a gambling addict and I was debt free and all those things, but it meant I could move forward. Um, and the secret was out. There was no longer a secret. Um, and I always say to people, I was stood on the, on the train platform. I was stood back against the railings. I was in floods of tears like I'd not been before. There were people looking at me, almost sort of laughing at me, trying to work out what on earth was going on. And I can honestly say it was the best I'd felt in 12 and a half years because the sense of relief was just extraordinary. And I knew at that point I could actually get the help that deep down I was desperate for and I had been for a long time and um, I came clean at that point. That conversation wasn't easy, um, far from it, but people's reaction was very different to what I thought it was going to be, how I'd played it in my head. And it was also like a line in the sand moment for me because it was like, look, now's, now's your chance. Um, and yeah, the rest is history. Hopefully. Beautifully put, man. Beautifully put. I mean, yeah, gives me goosebumps and brought a tear to my eye as well, because obviously that's a, a very shared experience that, that we've had as well. Um, 
And I feel just a great level of responsibility to keep talking openly about it and to keep sharing because, you know, the other side of depression is expression. And the other side, you know, for me, um, you know, half the suffering is the isolation. And within, you know, being isolated and not being able to express is just the most miserable place a, a man can go to. And you literally had a brother who pulled you off the train station. Many men don't have a brother. Um, they may have a sister. It's a different relationship. They may have a father. It's a different relationship. My import, my goal here is to make sure that every man or has the opportunity to have a brother. Every man should have access to a community where they feel comfortable to share. You know, your, your journeys from 2018 are now in 2023. How important has the role of community and particularly men in the community been for you in, in your recovery? Um, enormous. Um, I think two things on that. One is a lot of people believe that the opposite of addiction is connection. Um, that speaks to me massively because I was then thrown into therapy treatment. I'd always been very dismissive of it. It won't work for me. Don't like talking about my feelings. And there I was in that place and I found it really, really difficult. But my God, when I did it, did it help? And connecting with other people who were in similar situations to me, albeit very different in many ways, um, but the feelings behind it were similar, was so powerful. The power of talking is extraordinary. People will say to me now in my recovery, like what's, what's kind of the most effective tool? And I say talking, being open and being honest with myself and with other people, the community within the treatment that I was in, having other people that I felt who didn't know me, but I felt I could talk to them about absolutely anything and there was going to be no judgment. Um, Gamblers Anonymous played a big part again, another community fellowship um, where you connect with all sorts of different people for a common reason. Um, that was powerful. Family, my own special and very close community. And you're absolutely right that we all need someone or some people that we can have that relationship with. And it was interesting with my problems. I turned around to my dad, my mum, my brother, my sister, and I said, look, you, you will never understand exactly what I'm feeling or what I'm going through. And I want you to play this part in my life, but I don't need you to be my therapist, my counselor. I'll use other people for that. And you find different, you find different people who are cogs in that wheel, if you like, and all equally important. Um, 
but it's that community and and that kind of feeling of being with somebody that is so important um and it's it's been massive you're you've now used this extraordinary story to a very positive degree in your professional life and i know that you've had some movements over the last couple of months so why don't you let the listeners know a little bit about what you're doing and um yeah and and what you're looking to do in the future as well yeah i think um i had when i came out of rehab i'd kind of sorted myself out to a degree um i had a burning desire to share my story with people not because i think i'm some sort of hero who's going to change the world because I'm not proud of anything I did and I never will be, but because I simply didn't want anybody to go through what I did and I realized how many people were and I felt like in a weird way I had a bit of a gift. Um, I also saw the power of kind of showing vulnerability that what that had on me. So I thought, well, if I can give that to other people by sharing my own experiences, then that can only be a good thing um and also for my own recovery having a real sense of purpose um was really important um so i decided to do that um through my work and i was initially working for a, a fantastic organization that specializes in in kind of trying to take the problem out of gambling um which was great um and it gave me a platform to share my experiences i then wrote the book during lockdown and then more recently, I decided that I wanted to sort of go off on a little bit more of a holistic angle and talk about gambling, but because that's my story, but addiction and, and mental health more holistically um, using my own experiences. So I set up uh, my own company, which is called GAMED, which stands for Gambling Addiction and Mental Health. I go into predominantly schools but um with a desire to go into more and more different organizations the corporate world um and share my story um in the hope that it will raise awareness reduce stigma um help people spot signs in themselves and other people do something about it if they're struggling um and yeah just make the world a slightly better place in in my own small way um and the response that i get is generally really positive um in schools it's huge um and i think it's some really important life lessons for young people to um hear um i go into the environments that i grew up in and part of the motivation is because I think what comes with that is this kind of feeling of invincibility and this belief that these sorts of things don't happen to people like us, um, where actually it's far from it. Um, and similarly in, in, a, in the corporate world, which I operated in for a while, you realize that a lot of people think they're immune to these problems because they've got this, that, and the other, but actually it, it doesn't matter so yeah that's that's what i do and it's um it's rewarding um and it's nice to give something back after taking an awful lot away a real hero's journey mate i certainly never see myself as a hero um 
but I think one thing that is important to me is to try eventually to be defined by my recovery rather than my addiction. I'd love people to remember me for what I did post addiction rather than Patrick, the gambling addict. Thank you for sharing that. And to, you know, to me, you, you are a hero because you are a, a white middle-class middle-aged man talking vulnerably about the fact that it's not a complete nirvana um, out here. And you've been open and honest enough to, to talk about the mistakes that you've made, but also creating a platform that's going to be supporting many more people than you let down moving forward and your legacy will be remembered for that. I'm absolutely sure of it. I'm sure you will inspire and motivate many, many people through this. So thank you for what you do. So if people wanted to find you, is there any digital, do you have any digital assets that you'd like to tell people about? Um, I'm on social media, um, Twitter, Instagram, um, at Patrick Foster 2 on Twitter. Um, Instagram is at Patch Foster. Um, and if anybody does want to reach out cause they're struggling with something similar, then please, please do, um, LinkedIn. Um, you can find me there. Um, the nature in which I left um, my last job all under very good in good circumstances means that the website for my business is currently under construction. Um, but gamed.com uh, will exist soon. Um, and yeah, please do get in touch, whether it's kind of professionally or, or personally. Um, it would be great to talk to you, work with you. Um, and yeah, just thanks so much for for letting me share my story and and hopefully um these words might have helped one person thank you it was a real privilege and i mean that so thank you for tuning into the privileged man podcast if you feel a resonance with our message and are keen to join a globally connected community of men committed to nurturing and elevating their mental wealth i invite you to explore further visit our website theprivilegedman.com where you'll find enriching testimonials of men who have become a part of this empowering movement. Remember the journey to becoming a privileged man, a truly privileged man, one with elevated mental wealth, starts with your next action step. And that step could be just a click away. Thank you again for your time. And I'm looking forward to having you with us in our next episode.